Let's open our Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I must say before we read the first verse that uh, so far, and you've noticed and we've repeated it time and time again, that Ecclesiastes has to do with the things of this earth and this life and things under the sun. That's quite a, a consistent statement in the book of Ecclesiastes. That means the things of this earth, the things humans, basically. Uh, and also, uh, the word vanity of vanities. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. The word there means meaningless. Uh, it's all like chasing the wind. If you only strive for the things of this life. And that seems to be the basic thought throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, is men putting too much account on the things of this life. Men not understanding, people not understanding the uh, varied experiences of life, and what we really need to do is turn it all over to God and ask Him to help us through all the situations that we might face. So that might just give you an idea of what we're up against in studying Ecclesiastes. In this sixth chapter, you're going to find three things, riches and the inability to enjoy them. Riches and inability to enjoy them, that's verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 through 9, having all and yet no no fill of the soul, no satisfaction of the soul, having everything. And then in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, you have the sad ending wail of such situations. And meanwhile, we'll look at verse by verse and try to give you something on each and every verse. And then we studied also the seventh chapter, and if we can get that far, we'll try to bring that one. But let's look at the sixth, first of all. Uh, first of all, in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. In other words, it weighs heavily upon men. Common among men means that it weighs heavily upon men. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun. Then verses, verse 2 says this, A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof. But a stranger eateth it, this is vanity, and it is an evil disease. Now, God gives riches, and God gives wealth, and He gives honor. And so He must also give the power to enjoy it. And if He doesn't give the power to enjoy it, a man can have all the riches there, there is, and all the wealth, and all the honor, and all everything going for him, but God also gives the fulfillment of the enjoyment of these things. And we must understand that. He gives the earthly blessing, but also bestows the enjoyment. Look at verse uh, 3. If a man beget an hundred children, and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. When you think of a man living many, many years. If he had a hundred children, if he could live a thousand years, his days are many, and his soul not be filled with good, and also that he have no burial. You know, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews thought that uh, this was everything, is to have a good burial. And uh, if a man didn't have a, a good burial, then he was thought little of. And it means not only the burial itself, but having taking a name with him to the grave, so that he would be honored, not only in life, but after he's gone. 
And uh, of course, we'll get into more of that in the seventh chapter. But here a man can have all and yet not fill his soul with that which is good. Then we find it, verse uh, 3 says, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. In other words, being stillborn, a stillborn baby, being stillborn appears superior to an unsatisfied life. To never see the day, the light of day, than a life that is given and unsatisfied and unfulfilled. You know, Job said it. He wished that at one time when he was very low, he said, and you know, men say all kinds of things, but he's one that would not deny God and he feared God and said, God giveth and God taketh away. And yet when he was very low, he says, I wish I'd never been born. But we, we speak hasty words. Now, Job, later on, God gave him twice as much as he had at the beginning and he had reason to rejoice in his life. So sometimes we count it, we, we come to a judgment as to, Life not being worth living before we find out it's still yet to be lived. See, there's something in the future. Kind of like you've heard the story of the two frogs that fell into a vat of cream. How many people heard that story? <laughs> fell into a vat of cream, you know, and one of them would just be struggling around. He said, oh, what's the use? The world's not going to be miss one more frog. So he drowned. And the other, and he said he wanted to live, and he had a more optimistic view, and he kept paddling and squirming and uh, flipping around and squirming, and finally... He came out of that vat of cream because it turned to butter and he could get out of it. So sometimes you have a better blessing ahead if you'll just keep on struggling. And people give up too quick. But anyway, an untimely birth is better uh, than a man that does not is not satisfied with the things of life and God uh, doesn't give him the ability to be satisfied with the things of life. If you have uh, the necessities of life just thank God for them and use them and enjoy them and do not worry about uh, trying to just store up, but use what you have. And I don't mean be spendthrift. I, I don't mean waste anything, but I, I do mean to ha- take time uh, to enjoy what you have. In verse uh, 4 it says, For he cometh in with vanity. That's the stillborn baby. He. The word he there refers to the stillborn. For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This, this stillborn, hath more rest than the other, than the man that is not satisfied. This baby has more rest than the other. In the verse 6, verses 6 through 8, it says, Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he, he uh, seen no good, do not all go to one place, and that's the grave. The wise and the foolish and the poor all have a desire for things, and the poor know how to walk with the Lord and conceal their poverty and desire. You'll see that on down in verse 7 and 8. Look, all the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. A man that's a miser, the man, a man that's a miser, all the labor of the man is for the, his mouth, and yet his, the appetite is not filled. He doesn't enjoy anything. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor? So you have the wise and the fool and the poor. What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? So the wise and the foolish and the poor all have a desire for things, and the poor know how to walk with the Lord, and conceals his poverty and his desire. And he's happier of all of them if he knows how to walk with the Lord. And 
before the living. I want you to look at verse nine. It says, "Better in the sight of the eye, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire." This also is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Better to enjoy the present good, the sight of the eyes than to long for future delights. Better to enjoy the present than to crave that which is ahead and out of your reach and uncertain. A lot of people are always saying, boy, when I get what's ahead of me. Well, why, not, why don't you look at what you have right now? It says, better in the sight of, is the sight of the eyes, that is what is right here now, the present, than what? Than the wandering of des- the desire. The wandering, just wandering about the desire of having more and having this and having that and having the other and thinking by having that that you have desire for, that, that if you could just have that, you'd be satisfied. Have you ever seen folks that say, if I just had that, it sure make me happy. It'd be satisfied. And when you, by the way, if it's human made, you're going to find there's flaws in it. You can get the prettiest automobile that you ever saw and you drive that thing out of the the shop and the first thing you know sir i didn't know this was wrong with it and the screw falls out over here and the arm falls off the armrest and something you say i thought this thing was perfect you get it out there and kid with a new bicycle the chain hangs up on him or something there's always something you know it doesn't make any difference have you ever gone to the store and you say well that's exactly what i want you get home and you find all the the ineffective thing, you know, it just doesn't do what you want it to do. Well, see, we all got wandering desires. We think, boy, if I could just have this or that or the other. And we finally are never satisfied. And we better take things as they are and use them for what they are because uh, you'll find that you'll be disappointed if you think you've got the perfect thing in life. So let's learn to do that. Better to enjoy the present then, isn't it, than it is to worry about all that you might have that may be uncertain. Let's look at verse 10. It says, That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Man is unable to control his destiny, which is determined by God. Someone says, you mean you're a a fatalist? No, this is... Contrary to fatalism, which which views God as not uh, knowing, non-existent, and un, uh, uninvolved, God is involved, but God still is in control. Have you ever heard someone say, "Why did this ever happen? Why did this happen to me? I don't know why it happened to you, and you don't know why it happened to you, but God knows why it happened to you, and there was a purpose for it in God's plan and purpose for your life. He knows why it happened to you, and don't think that just because uh, it happened that everything is bad. I can imagine old Joe back there say, why did this have to happen to me? He was a wealthy man and everything he was, had was taken away from him in, in a day and his sons and his daughters were all taken away and then he was smitten from the top of his head to the sole of his feet with sore boils and he took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with a pot share, it says, a broken piece of pottery. And his wife even turned against him and says, curse God and die. Says, you're not fit to live. Job says he maintained his integrity, didn't he? He says, naked I came into this world and that's the way I'm going to leave it. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And what did he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You and I couldn't hardly, we could hardly do that, could we? It would be a, would be a hard dose to take, wouldn't it? And yet, in all of the sufferings, God finally brought him through 
And at the end, he gave him twice as much as he had at the beginning. By the way, he gave him twice as much of his animals and of his material possessions, but he only gave him, it says, it makes a statement, he gave him twice as much as he had at the beginning. But he gave him the seven sons and three daughters. Well, that was not twice as much. Oh, yes, it was, because he still had those that had just gone to another location. He had twice as much. See, if God had given him twice as many here on the earth, he'd had three times as many. But it says God gave him twice as much as he had at the beginning. And he tells about twice as many camels, twice as many oxen, and etc., etc. And all his possessions was doubled. But then when it comes down to his sons and daughters, it says he gave him seven sons and three daughters. You say, well, I thought he'd give him fourteen and six. No. Because he still had the others. They had just moved into heaven. And the souls of men are different from that of animals and of possessions of this earth. Okay? It says in verse uh, uh, 11. Well, continue with verse 10. Let's read that again. I want to give you something else. It says, That which hath been is named already, and it is known It is known that it is man. In other words, it's, it's on the level of man. Neither may he, man, contend with him that is mightier than he. The whole being of man is fully known by the Lord, against whom no man can contend. We do not contend with God. We pray to God. We ask Him to deliver us from problems and things that we uh, need deliverance from, and we seek God's guidance and help. But on the other hand, we cannot contend with Him and say, God, why did you make me like I am? Or why did I have to go through this? Why did I have... Don't be contending, but be praying for a brighter day and look forward to... You know, God wants us to trust Him. That's what He wants. He wants us to trust Him in all situations. And, uh, you know, you say, Preacher, well, that's easy for you to say because... Uh, but, you know, I have the same problems you do. Sickness and trials and all kinds of things. I've been very concerned about this problem here because a preacher needs to have a good uh, voice. He needs to be able to talk at least. And uh, so I'm turning it over to the Lord and I'm trusting God. I've been praying about it. My wife's been praying about it. Brother Randy had prayer with me this morning before I went to the doctor. And uh, I thought the worst, and, uh, or it could have been, and... Turned out, I think God's going to bring it out of there, and I pray that God will use the medication that the doctor gave me to bring about the healing. And uh, when we do everything we could, you know, it says the Lord healed Hezekiah of his disease, but yet it says that they took a lump of figs and they made a poultice or whatever, and they put it on the the problem. So you use the medicine, and then God does the healing, and He's given us that for for that purpose, and we should use all the the means at our disposal, and then pray that God will bring about the healing that He has promised. And He promised Hezekiah that He would heal him. And He did. But there was human means that was involved as well. Alright, let's go on here. Verse 12 now says, uh, verse 11 says, Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man, uh, what is, what is the man the better? Look at how many things that increase vanity. And is man the better for it? For all the vanity. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? Do you know man is unable to know what is to his advantage? We say, well, that's sure a disadvantage to me. It may be the best advantage you ever had, and you think it's disadvantage. God can turn that which you think is a disadvantage to you to be to your to your prosperity and to your success. I've had that happen so many times in my life. I know that I'm not alone. You can testify the same thing. You thought, well, you know... Uh, old Joseph, remember, was down in Egypt, 
was sold by his brothers and uh, into slavery. And uh, when Joseph finally was restored to his brothers, they repented and they were sorry and so on when he, they came down to buy corn in Egypt. And you know, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To send me before you to preserve life. And he was the salvation of his whole family. And the, the one that brought them down there to prosper and to be taken care of during the time of the famine. So we never know what's the best for us. Sometimes we think we do. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? You don't even know what's going to follow. So we better look to God for eternal things. Now look at chapter 7 quickly, if you will. And notice... uh, there are some things that we find in chapter 7. The first thing, the better things in verses 1 through 14. And uh, prosperity and adversity controlled by a higher power, verses 15 through 18. And then the strength of wisdom, yet none of us are perfect, verses 19 through 22. And then the worst thing he found, verses 23 through 29. And so we'll find that these are kind of four divisions of this seventh chapter. But as again, we always do take it verse by verse. Look at verse 1. It says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and a day of death than the day of one's birth. Someone might say, What does this mean? The Hebrews' greatest ambition was to have a good name that would live on. And so that when they died, they would still have the memory In other words, an honorable memory of the one that dies. Now, we find people are not so much concerned about that today. They're grasping for all that they get in life, and they don't care what people think after they're gone. But that's not the proper attitude. The proper attitude is to live your life so that you'll enjoy it now and be blessed of God now, and also when you're gone, that people will not have to say, well, that rascal, I'm glad he's not here with us anymore. That they'll know that uh, that there's someone that uh, they may miss from being in their presence. So here he gives in this uh, chapter a counsel concerning wisdom and concerning folly. And certainly it's a wise thing to have a good name. A good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment. This means anointing oil. Uh, a good name is better than precious ointment. The Bible teaches uh, that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. So the anointing, uh, in fact, the Messiah means the anointed one. Jesus is that one that was anointed above all. And notice, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. That is, the day of death can be more blessed than the day of one's birth if the time comes to die that you leave an honorable memory and that you've lived a good life. Now, in verse 2, and some of these things are paradoxical. Some of these things are hard to understand. But I want you to notice there are some, a lot of sense made by them if we'll get, delve into the meaning. It says, it is better to go to the house of mourning, listen, than to the house of feasting. Better go to the, listen, this sounds really terrible, doesn't it? Better go to the funeral home and view a dead body. And be around the folks there that's mourning over the a lost one uh, that's gone on or loved one that's passed on. Than to go to some big party and enjoy a high heel time and be drinking and carousing and having a so-called good time. Someone says, how can that be better? It says it's better. So we take God's word for it. For 
That is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. He will think more seriously about life and the meaning of life if he goes to the house of mourning than he will out there trying to drown his troubles with a good time. He'll think more seriously about life and the fact that we've all got to come to that place and we'll be in that house of mourning someday ourselves. And we'll begin to take life more serious. And we'll uh, begin to purify our lives. We'll begin to do something about how we're living. We'll be more concerned about how we're living. The sight of the dead is not a pleasant sight. But still, on the other hand, it does cause us to think. You know, a lot of people just want to laugh their way through this life. And a few others, a few others want to face reality. Now, which, how, how do you want to do it? You want to laugh your way through this life and say, I don't want to look at anything that's of a negative nature. I don't want to think about being dead. And I don't want to see a dead body. And I don't want to go to the funeral home. And by the way, it might do you good when you see a family over there, husband or wife or son or daughter, father or mother, weeping over one that's gone on and, and, and really feeling the loss of losing one of their family. It might, be, it might do you some good to think that you know one of these days I'm going to have to face this same situation. Am I living for God or am I trying to just live for myself and the flesh and not... Uh, care about anything and take anything more seriously. It's one way you might wake up, unless you're like some folks, they say get it over with as soon as possible. Most of Randy and I, we face funerals and they'll say, Brother Joyce, they'll tell Randy and I, just make it real brief. You know why? They don't want to be around a preacher and they don't want to hear a message from God's Word. That's the whole thing. They don't want to face up to reality. They'd rather go to the party than to listen to something that has to do with the real part of life that you're going to live and you're going to die. And you better be prepared for it. And that's why they say, make it real short. It's not because the weather's cold. It's not because, you know, it's not because of the circumstances and everybody's got to get back home and catch a plane real quick. You know, if it took them time to catch a plane to get here, you say, Preacher, don't go on too much about that. But listen, I'm, I'm serious as I can be about it. If you preach as many funerals as I've had to preach, you'll find all kinds of situations. And most of the time, people want to tell you how to preach. I say, now, Brother Joyce, preach this and preach that and do this and do that. Why don't you just turn it over to the preacher and let him do his work? You'd probably have a lot better situation if you would. I'll guarantee you'd work better. He'd have the singers singing some songs that mean something. They'd be spiritual. They'd be meaningful. They'd be a blessing. And they'd be in their category to sing. They'd know that it's a song that God would anoint and bless. And then uh, every person that's involved in the service would bring about something that would be a real blessing and a comfort to people and bring the needed instructions. And I'm just saying that from the pulpit as a preacher that I know that what people do, they, they just do all kinds of things when it comes to these things. By the way, I can throw in a little more stuff here. When you're going to get married, you get the preacher to perform the ceremony and you'll have a good wedding as well. Turn it over to him. And you, you know, you do the walking down the aisle and all the stuff you, you want to do, but don't try to tell him how to do his work. He knows best. I mean, you know, there's certain things that he, he's experienced in. And that's his business to do those things. All right. 
back to this. Maybe I start meddling too much. Okay, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. He'll take life more seriously. Verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter. For the, Look, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Look at that. By the what? Sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. A man become, has a more serious mood when he thinks about life, and he has a motivation to do, uh, for a pure heart. The heart of, in verse uh, 4 it says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Where's the heart of the wise? He takes life more serious. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Have you ever seen folks that just always want to have a party? Always want to have a big party. That's all that's on their mind. We want to go and have a good time. Have you ever seen folks that's, uh, that want to take life a little more serious? That's up to you. Personally, that's your, your, your way of dealing with a social life. But I'll tell you, as far as being... Uh, learning something, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. You go visit someone that's... You go to the care center once in a while. You go over here and visit a, a, the home of a shut-in that the person's on, uh, on uh, a respirator or on uh, oxygen. The brother heard down there. And his wife has uh, diabetes so bad that it just goes up and down like a yo-yo and she can't get it leveled off. And, I mean, struggles and takes insulin and all kinds of stuff. And... and you go visit a few folks like that and and realize that, that there's folks bad off in this life. You say, preacher, that's depressing. No, it isn't. It might stop you to think a little bit. It might get you to thinking more seriously about life and how thankful you ought to be if you still got your health and appreciate it a little more. But you go to the house of feasting. Look, the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Okay, verse 5 says, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. The song of fools just please the flesh. But it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. The song of fools, they just sing on and on about their, their play up and sing up their foolishness. But the rebuke of the wise to cause us how to live. The Bible told... Uh, it says, Paul told Timothy, he says, preach the word, be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You don't reprove and rebuke without long suffering and doctrine. And it's to be tendered with love, but it is to be laid out straight. And by the way, did you know, that, and I'm not saying just because I'm teaching this, because, but I am saying it because it's God's word. Do you know that you folks that are here tonight will meet, will receive more instruction about how to face the problems of life than all of the... You go to these seminars or whatever up there, you've received more instruction from God's Word, and as I say, it's because it's God's Word, than you would receive in several hours of trying to get instruction on how to deal with the problems of life. Because God's Word has that in it. And if you'll come consistently and listen to God's Word, you're going to find out how to deal with life and how to face the problems that you'll face. So, and look at verse 6. It says, For as the crackling, look, I like this, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is also the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. Dry thorns, a snapping bright blaze like the empty laughter of a fool, the fire quickly dies out. You know, thorns, you take the old uh, wash pot on the farm out in the backyard. They'd heat the water in the 
in a big old black pot and you throw the clothes in there and you take a stick and poke them around. Throw in a bar of lye soap and whatever. Some of you remember that. Some don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyway, you put the you put the fire under that old wash pot. Now listen, if you just put thorns and thistles under there, you light a match to them and they're gone. They're not going to heat that wash pot. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. It just one little blaze and one little crackle and snap and it's gone. Snap, crackle, and what? Okay. And it's gone. But you'd have to put some solid wood under there and some something that would hold a fire and a piece of oak and a little bit of pecan and pine and mesquite or whatever, right? And then you get that water hot. And it start boiling up there and then you can wash those clothes in there. Of course, see, that's a little different than the washing machines, isn't it? But it's good to have known how to do both. That makes you appreciate a washing machine in the house. But... It says, so is the laughter of a fool. What does it mean? It's just, the laughter of a fool is just so instant and so quick, and then it's gone, and what does it amount to? Nothing. This is also what? Vanity. By the way, our time is gone, so I have quite a bit to deal with in this chapter, so I guess we'll stop with that verse. It's a good place to stop. Verse 6. We'll pick up with verse 7 in our next lesson. It's after the time to close. We thank you for your patience and your kind attention.